Hey everybody and welcome back to another Pink Pod. This one is a special episode where we're going to dig into the results of our massive state of the sports survey that saw us pull nearly 200 of mountain biking's professional athletes. Now the survey was anonymous and it quizzed riders on things like pay, physical and mental support, opportunities and equality, regulations, media, home country support, and women-specific issues. Now, this poll went out to everybody from downhillers, enduro riders, cross-country riders, and even some free riders. Now, there are a lot of numbers, and to help us unpack some of these, I've got our very own ex-pro mountain boarder, James Smurthwaite, boss man Brian Park, and some guy who loves hard-to-live-with internal cable routing named Henry Quinney. All right, let's get into it. This week's Pink Bike Podcast is presented by Trail Forks. Are you prepared for adventure this summer? Explore with no local knowledge wherever the trails might lead you, with Trail Forks providing the most accurate maps, information and trail conditions. Trail Forks is your all-access trail map, helping you to find your favourite new zones and plan the perfect ride with over 350,000 trails in your pocket. Visit trailforks.com or download the free Trail Forks app on the App Store or get it on Google Play and be prepared for adventure this summer. All right, James, I'm used to going onto the pink bike and seeing reviews of knee pads and race coverage and all sorts of other things. But now we got all this survey stuff up there. I think we have, I mean, how many survey, survey articles altogether are we going to have, James? And can you tell me, why did you do it? Why are we doing this massive survey? Yeah, we're going to get into double figures um, and then there'll be a big data dump at the end. So you can kind of pick through at your leisure and maybe find some other things in there. Um, We mainly did it. um, Gosh, I don't know. I guess there was a story we kind of blew in February. And um, ever since that, I kind of wanted to take on a a project and always kind of make up for it. And then Henry and I, we were just chatting about your mechanicing days and all the kind of issues that kind of went un- unspoken about and, and never made it to the surface and it just kind of spiraled from there didn't it yeah pretty much there was kind of a I think you definitely suggested it well like, oh wouldn't it be great if we could do this and I was just like I just it, it really captured my imagination it was great to be able to kind of help out along the way really it's um it's been a long time coming actually it's really weird to get it out there now when I feel like so many days it's been like what are you up to today and it's like survey stuff or you know continuation of projects whatever yeah there was um there was a survey i saw done by ecb which is the england and wales cricket board um and that was all about uh, like racism in english cricket and i think we kind of talked through that and how cool it would be to to do something similar just on all sorts of different topics you know and and then yeah it went from there you guys reached out to something like 200 professional riders was there more. any resistance more than that? It was, was there any resistance to to riders answering questions or anything? We only got one piece of negative feedback reaching out to people, or one piece that I saw anyway. Um, but generally, people were either really, really keen and really interested or just kind of ignored it for, for one reason or another or didn't get back to us in time. Um, but yeah, only, only one piece of negative feedback. Um, but generally pretty good responses i think and i remember when we first talked about it we thought like 40 riders would be a good number to get back so when the survey actually went out and we had 40 within the first hour or something we were just like yeah we were stoked absolutely so how many did you ask altogether so we asked about 200 we did the the top sorry about 400 we did the top 40 uh in each discipline and then kind of that's not really so much the case with like free ride or social media athletes. So we, we kind of picked a handful of, of them that we thought were, were influential and sizable. Um, and then about five of the top juniors as well. So you had quite an age spread as well there to juniors to some people who were well along in their career, you could say. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and it, it was really good, I think, to get, you know, people who've been in the 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 business for a while and maybe sort of know the recurring issues and then juniors they have their own issues you know like making their way up, up into the elite ranks and mm-hmm. you know i think only one junior was paid actually on the survey responses so obviously when we talk about financial stuff like the juniors <clears throat> they certainly have it worse than anyone so it's that you know we thought it was important to get their kind of views as well yeah and this was done anonymously james why was that 
pretty much because um, some of the questions we ask could put the riders in hot water, I think, um, if their kind of responses could be traced back to them. And we just thought it was the best way for them to answer honestly and uh, openly and give us, you know, the best information possible. Yeah, I I think as well, the cool thing about doing it anonymously is is that we want to do this year on year and we want to track the trends, not just like standout figures. And if we kind of focused on Mm -hmm. what each person had to say, then you'd almost want to follow their story. And actually it's more about, you know, more holistic kind of mountain biking as a whole and and seeing which direction it goes. So it's going to be really interesting next year and the subsequent years to see what trends and, and where they go. I mean, the the data is going to be skewed because the people are going to fight so much harder to stay in the top 40 just so that they get asked the survey questions next year. <laughs> that's that's what's going to happen. That's going to skew, yeah, exactly. <laughs> There's a free packet of Haribo to every single person surveyed in the post. I don't think that's true, but we probably should do something for everybody who responded. Yeah, we don't know who responded, though. Like, oh, right. We actually oh, yeah. don't <laughs> know who the answers belong to. Like, it's, not like, it's not like we're just hiding it from the readers. Like, I genuinely don't know who they are it's anonymous to you guys as well yeah yeah oh nice yeah so james what are some of the limitations of this survey um well i mean for a start it's a survey right we're not in any way pretending to be sort of data scientists or that we're going to get this peer reviewed and it's going to be published as an official document you know um it's an anonymous survey and there's obviously scope for questions being misunderstood maybe not being interpreted in the way we imagined you know there's a lot of non-english speakers among the people surveyed so the potential for misunderstandings there and also you know, we, we've got no way of verifying the truth for this. I mean, we've taken all answers in good faith. And I, I assume, you know, I can't see why, why someone would lie. But um, we've got no way of kind of verifying that this is true. Um, this is just representing the data that we've been given, basically. Because it's anonymous. We, we can't go and dig in like, oh, this person said this. Let's go and ask somebody else about who might know. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't verify a lot of those things. Yeah. And then obviously, we, we've made a selection bias. And we cut off at 40 because we thought that gives us a good spread of riders and those are the riders that are most likely to have an influence on sort of the future of the sport they're the riders that are likely to race every round of a given series um when you go beyond that you know you might get some people might just do the european rounds or they might not do a full season for whatever reason um but obviously they have their own issues and and they aren't included in this so it doesn't cover every racer but we've tried to give a good range of racers that have a, a significant influence on the sport as well yeah, like the people who are that were surveyed are people that are on, so to speak, on the inside already. So they have sort of, by nature, they somewhat benefit from the status quo or may benefit from the status quo in ways that people on the outside looking in don't. Yeah. So I kind of want to jump right into this. And I think the the topic that most readers are seem to be most interested in is the pay, and especially with the downhillers. Henry, you wrote an article, Five Key Stats from the Downhill Racers in the Pink Bikes State of the Sport survey. And I'm looking at numbers here. So excluding those that are enduro riders first and downhill second, 49%, basically half of them, earn a total of between zero and $5,000 American a year. That that seems low. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's quite shocking. Um, you know, I mean, there, there is, there are two ways to look at this. And we, in, I know that there's the argument that these these teams do invest, assuming these riders have a team, these teams do invest in these riders and they pay their airfares and their hotel costs and they move them around, etc. And, you know, so there is maybe more money behind the scenes we don't think about. I feel, and it may be my own anecdotal experience on the circuit that and this is kind of you know put my colors to the mast but i feel that there is money to be made in downhill but currently it's being made off these riders not by these riders and um and i think it's just honestly it sounds really you know melodramatic but i just th- thought some of it was just so sad you know you'd hear stories about certs and such you know maybe not getting a good deal or some bad thing happening and i really always thought and hoped they were just outliers and they didn't actually represent a real trend and it was the reason you're hearing about them was their noteworthiness was because they were so so out there and it's just sad because you know all these riders that i look up to and if i had their skill set 
I'd be trying to do it too. You know what I mean? Like it would just be, they're just these, you know, who wouldn't want to ride a bike like that? Um, but they're not being compensated anywhere near fairly, in my opinion. So you've, Henry, you've, you've been a World Cup mechanic and you've spent time with a lot of these athletes. Is that, is that the sort of anecdotal feeling around that a lot of people feel taken advantage of? And did that bear out in our survey as well? Yes. I mean, like were, people, money's being, being made off of them without them benefiting. I, th- I think there's, there is an element of that. I mean, I think, um, trying to choose my words carefully here. I think that as we, as we've already alluded to, there is a huge gulf in terms of, you know, the extreme high end and, 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 and the more kind of the riders that, you know, would get a top 20, could get a top 30, who are amazing riders, but perhaps aren't quite at the stage yet where they are challenging regularly for podiums, etc. Um, there does seem to be, and I'd say it's a mixed bag. You get some riders who, I've spoken to them, and they might maybe say that they get paid £3,000 a year. And you think, oh, well, that's okay, because they have their all their expenses paid for, etc. And they six months of the year, they go swanning around the world and racing their bike. But they go back to their normal life for the other six months, and the second the season's is over, they're on a building site. They're in the gar- They're doing gardening. They're doing anything that's non-committal work that means they can ensure racing without having to commit, you know, a year to it, three years to it. Because there aren't that many jobs that you can basically say, "Hi, so I'm going to come back in October. I'm going to work like a dog for two months, and then you're not going to see me again for another ten months." You know, um, I I just want to contrast that number that we were talking about. So we said basically uh, half, forty nine percent of World Cup downhillers earn a total of between zero and $5,000 American a month, or sorry, a year, not a month. (laughs) But if we look at the EWS field, 50% of them make between $20,000 and $100,000 per year, Henry. It sounds like there's a lot more money in the EWS world. Um, what What would you say to that? Is that simply just because it's, there's more marketing there? I don't know. I think, um, I think the way the EWS highlights a run, I think they basically do better to guarantee airtime because it's not done on the live stream. So that means that the way you kind of position your riders, as far as I understand it, is that you're going to get more airtime. I would guess this is, this is, I know that we're in a podcast about stats and hard numbers, but (laughs) I don't have the number here. I would guess that the average age of the enduro field is older than the age of the downhill field. So some of them have more established careers. Some of them used to race downhill or come or cross country come in from other disciplines. And there is, it is not just results based. I think everybody acknowledges that the wages are not result really just talent and speed based. Um, and while most of it is how many units you can move, um, there is certainly a expectation of people's wages to go up as throughout their careers up to a certain point. So I think just by nature being older, there's there's a good chance that that has some effect on the higher EWS wages. Yeah, I think if we're talking about shifting bikes as well, like I'm sure enduro bikes outsell downhill bikes 50 to one, if if not more, you know. Oh, way more. <laughs> yeah. So um, if you're going for like direct influence an enduro race might have on a, on a customer's purchasing decision, like it seems like there's a much easier trail to follow there as well. I, I think I'm going to end up being painted as the industry shill on this, on this podcast. So I'll take that. I'll take that. Um, but really just to put the other side out there, that racing, racing isn't charity. Like brands don't go racing just because they love racing. Lots of people do lots of the team managers and marketing people and even owners of brands absolutely love racing are passionate about it. They want to win. Um, but they wouldn't be, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars, sometimes millions of dollars on factory race teams going around the world if it didn't if it didn't help their bottom line. I mean, I think, to be honest, I think there are so many things that are overblown, at least in my limited mm-hmm. experience, you know. I think the the product development side of downhill is just I don't know. Some of the, a lot of time I think it's bullshit, to be honest with you. I think um it's such a nice thing to be really? able to say We've got our pro team. Oh my God, it's tested. Then they get your carbon frame that's supposedly a prototype with some swanky digi camo. The molds are already made. They haven't got any intention on changing yep. it. They make a song and dance. Oh, it's a, 
it's Digicamo, man. Did you see it? But you didn't see it. And it's just embarrassing. And then they kick out 12 months later. Someone sounds sometimes... salty. <laughs> no, because it, it's, it's, like absolutely, it. <laughs> it's absolutely maddening. Yeah, it's all marketing, including that Digicamo paint job for the so-called prototype that, you know, they don't want photos of supposedly and just like all the other team videos and everything else that comes from a world cup weekend it's all means to an end no okay marketing shill here again <laughs> excuse no uh, i mean first of all thank you marketing for making my weekends more enjoyable and giving these people jobs in the first place like i don't think we should undermine that this is awesome we all love racing um but two um, I can confirm that lots of prototype stuff happen and testing stuff happens on at least on EWS side uh, and with with free riders and yeah, having worked for a brand that spent a lot of time with with the riders, um, their bikes would have been worse without that rider feedback. Um, and uh, I was just thinking about your example, but I think on downhill maybe less so, but on enduro side i think that the entirety of enduro racing has made those bikes infinitely better than they were in 2014 2015 yeah i I think you're right in the sense that it depends because i think the the bike industry is quite a strange thing in sometimes sometimes because you have a bike company that might have a design designed by basically consultations you have a third party coming in they've booked they're running the factory from someone else that someone else owns the factory Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so this idea they're going to chop and change no like the the train is going (laughs) like it is leave Mm -hmm. it is go it is going through the station at 60 mile an hour and it is not stopping for anyone and this idea that things can chop and change when actually you know it's business and just to come back to what you said earlier on about you know it's not charity you're right Mm -hmm. it's not charity that's exactly the thing that has got me so pissed off about this whole survey thing Mm -hmm. is because these Mm -hmm. riders are doing it for charity you know what i mean and it's such a we watch them and i would compare it to like you know you watch a film the top 20 riders etc the top 30 riders the top 40 they might not be the blockbuster names but even the extras in a film get a wage yeah and without them the top wouldn't get pushed as hard exactly so Henry, there are definitely some comments in your article that, um, to, to paraphrase, are basically saying they're getting paid. Riders are getting paid what they're worth because I mean that's like that, that's how the market works, you know. And if, if you, you don't, live in a capitalist system, some people are mad at, at us yeah. in the comments that we have run a survey that shows that we live in a capitalist system, but we do. Don't be mad at me about that, please. <laughs> To be fair, I was happier when I didn't know. So maybe they're right. Maybe maybe it is our fault. <laughs> you know, it's it's almost like there needs to be some sort of privateer support system, James, or maybe some more support from these riders' home countries, yeah. which is something else we talked about in the survey. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, I think um, the most obvious comparison I make is is with road cycling. Um, the UCI mandates a minimum wage for all riders. There are 500 World Tour riders who will make a minimum of 45,000, um, I think it's euros a year. Um, to be fair, James, what they need to do to earn that $45,000 is like a Pro Tour domestique. It's not worth it. <laughs> no, and, and it's, I don't think anybody will mind us saying it's they have to work way harder than 90% of pro mountain bikers. It's awful. Oh, yeah. It's a horrible oh, yeah. existence. I don't doubt that, but some someone somewhere has taken action and said, these people are doing work there. This is their livelihood. This is a skill worth paying. Um, I don't know who that would be for the mountain bike industry, but I would like there to be someone who, who mandates that in some way. Do we know in the road world, is that was that like the UCI that took that initiative? And... Could we see that in the mountain bike world? I wonder why we don't. Do you, do you guys have any idea? I'd love to see that in the mountain bike world. Not not that everybody should be making 150K or something. Or even, I mean, if the road world's 45K. For um, the road, road world, it's 40K for pro tour teams and 30K for continental teams. It would make sense if it were lower than that. But it would be nice. Just These people do put themselves at a lot of risk for our entertainment it would be nice if there was a minimum, like, you know, once you've made it into the top 40, you still haven't even come close to making it. You know, you, it's still super elitist as a sport. You, if you are somebody that doesn't come from money, 
and you sacrifice a lot. Your family sacrifices a lot. And holy shit, you are now one of the 40 fastest riders in the world. You still have to rely on family support for all the way through. And if you won't top out at top 20, tough luck. Local hero only. And it's um, it's really precarious as well, you know? Like, you could make it into the top 10 and then get a bad injury, um, miss a couple of seasons, and that's it. You're You're done, and you've invested you know, the first 20 years of your life into this, you've maybe not got as many qualifications because of that, because you've worked so hard to do it. And then you're kind of out on your ass and yeah, good luck, you know. I think the idea of a minimum wage thing is really interesting, but I think you could do it in other ways. I mean, I think there does need to be a degree of legislation. And I think for me, I would just love to see, I know, I think there's some things that might seem slightly gimmicky, but actually... It's all kind of nonsense, really. You know, like sport, it's all a set of gimmicks and rules and, you know, new ones sometimes seem strange, but there's no reason they should be. I would love to see it that I think it'd be a really good start if teams, the protected status goes to teams and that's rewarded on the overall. Because that that would mean that suddenly being a support rider would have a real worth because it would mean that you're going to get, you know, like now you can basically get like a one-man band that goes and smashes the World Cup circuit and you know, goes really, really well. What what it would mean is that it would put an emphasis on support riders, which would artificially drive up their wages. And it could also mean, really excitingly, that if a rider got injured from that team, they could call in someone else for their spot. I think that would be super cool. I'd also like to see something like, you can only get UCI trade team status if you satisfy two of the three categories, being elite female, elite male and junior. Yet again, it'd be like an artificial increase. To, it would co- it would create demand for riders who maybe haven't had their big moment yet. I love both of those ideas without having thought about them too much. Don't think about them too much. Don't. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I think in mountain biking world, it might be difficult to impose some sort of minimum wage unless it was quite a bit lower than that pro tour number. I think there's a lot less money in mountain biking. Like but you even couldn't. If we had a minimum wage of ten grand or yeah. five grand. Even it would be more than what like thirty percent will. Somebody tell me the actual number. James, what's the actual number? Like, How many people are in the top 40 of all these disciplines aren't making any money? Of all the disciplines. Um, yeah. is, it was know, like 20%. It. it was shockingly high of yeah, people who don't take that. a wage from mountain biking. 27. Despite yeah. 27% of <laughs> professional top 40 riders are not making any money from mountain biking. Now, they may have a ton of their cost cover. They may get bikes. They may whatever else. But that's grim. Maybe they sell their frames at the end of the year, right? They do, but like still, yeah, that's they have grim. to to eat. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think for me, either that wage is lower, or um, unfortunately, the field size gets much smaller. Um, like, say, you know, you, you take your top thirty instead of your top sixty, as it currently is, um, and you make it a bit more exclusive, but. Those riders who aren't guaranteed a minimum wage, they go to a national series. It makes the national series a bit stronger. They don't have to travel as far, so their costs aren't as high. And it sort of uplifts that sort of feeder um, series as well, um, which would help grassroots racing and everything like that. And I, you know, I think that's the way that it could go where the people racing at the top level, they're getting paid, you know, a sort of a, a respectable amount and um, the rest are in a sort of separate series. But is a bit more prestigious than what's there now. But I think that's the, that's the problem exactly, is that somebody knows as a rider, they need to be on the World Cups, so they're good enough, and that's what their brands or whatever want. And so they're basically faced with, right, well, I can either basically, you know, get remortgage the family home to spend on a season of downhill racing, or they meet a team owner who says, hey, basically, I'll take you around for free, and at the end of the season, I'll pay you, you know, a half-eaten Snickers and a crisp high five, and you'll be on your way. And suddenly mm-hmm. they think, oh my God, I've basically made 30 grand or something like that because I didn't have to spend it. But that's not mm-hmm. the same. I think what's really interesting is this idea. Sorry, of, I, I just want to okay. jump in there because that's yeah. a really great point. And I, full disclosure, I have done that. I have been the guy that has, somebody has wanted to go racing and I've had my budget finished. They've been a top 40 top 50 rider and it's like i do not have any more sports marketing budget for you you've you know you're a great ambassador for us like you're a good guy somebody we like to have around um 
I've got, there's a little bit more. We could have you sleep on the couch if you want to come racing. Um, and I can give you five. I don't think I ever paid anybody less than five grand, but still like not a living wage. Was that a better choice than just flicking them? Cause that was the other option, you know? Well, I think that's, what's really interesting. You know, there's back over in old blighty. We've got a lot of talk about the super series in football. So this idea is actually quite, it's basically mm-hmm. the big clubs go and do their own thing and everyone else has just got to like work it out themselves basically. And I don't think for downhill, I don't necessarily think that would be the end of the world. I think you could make it a really interesting, exciting prospect, especially with, mm-hmm. you know, cause you could just basically nullify so many variables by how good would it be if everyone was on the same tires? You have a tire sponsor that does like everyone, like they do in formula one. It'd be amazing. Oh, are but you simply, talking about a control series? I don't think you can you can't do that if you want people to pay the riders though, yeah, Henry. Exactly. No, but, no, but you can because it would basically be the problem that we have at the moment. I think for new people getting into downhill, which is really important because you know we need we need the large audience possible. So they turn up and they oh I'm going to watch a downhill race. So such such qualified yesterday. Rob Warner gives them a load of numbers about points that no one really understands. Oh, they're seventeenth. So that means they get. Um, you know, 3.5, oh, it's all weird. And then they do it and it's like, oh, by the way, this person's in the hot seat. You didn't even see them come down because they came down like an hour ago for some undisclosed reason. And it's such a confusing thing. If it was streamlined and you had 20 riders and the same people riding every week like you do in Formula One, you'd know, you know so who you the would, people are. And that's so important. So that's how you would increase their value? That's interesting. I, what I liked what you said before about narrowing the field is interesting because the transition right now from the national series being a national level rider to an international level rider is horrible. There is there is no real way to hone your skills in a place where you might actually stand on a podium. It's like it's just straight into the shark tank. If people like for the people that don't realize it like you could literally like win a national and be the best in your country and then go to a world cup 76 and just yeah, <laughs> barely qualify. It's crazy. <laughs> We talk about charity again. I mean, mm. the biggest charity you're probably going to find is people actually put on grassroots racing. And what's crazy is yes. that, you know, in the UK, grassroots racing is st- extends up to like national level events. That's not like that in other sports. You don't go, oh, the Premier League, that's grassroots footballer in hope you one day make the big time of a World Cup or something. It's, it's bizarre. Yeah, but it's, we're not football. We're not car racing. Like it's just mountain biking. And I don't think we're ever going to be that stuff. And I don't think that that should be the goal. Let's be honest about since we are in the capitalist system today and there is a certain Speak amount. For yourself, man. I know, right? <laughs> Over here. <laughs> Hippie Levy. It's good. Um, the number of zeros on your check is directly correlated to how many units you move how many people do does anybody here think purchase products based on whoever got 32nd at the ews last weekend i know like who would even know (laughs) who would even know who got 32nd at the ews last weekend but i think you purchase the the purchase power in mountain biking is down to personality and so mm-hmm. if we had this dream situation where we made the Nationals something, you know, pride in place, there was a really big deal to win one, right? Hear me mm-hmm. out. I know this is some dystopian alternate reality, but hear me out. Yeah. <laughs> then you could become more familiar with the personalities that are racing due to the smaller field size. And then that would subsequently, in turn... It sounds like you want everybody to be Instagram athletes. Cool. Henry Quinney here. You heard it here first. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, what I no, I mean, do you know what? This is something. What I what I thought was really sad, and I've I've written this article, which I don't know when this podcast is going to go out. But I used to work as something of an influencer, right? On on the <laughs> tube of views, right? And I'd I'd basically my job was essentially through making you know nice videos that people could watch would be to influence, which is fine. That's 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 a thing. But what I thought was really sad is I was basically making a song and dance about having used to have done the thing, you know, I used to be a welcome mechanic and that's why I got the job. And a lot, and you know, that's the only riders, reason I hired you too. Yeah. I mean, fair enough. I mean, it's the only thing, a good thing I've got going for me, but, um, <laughs> but what I found really sad is that these riders could abandon doing the actual thing to a really high level, go on YouTube, come along with old Joe blogs over here, like me talk about merely used to doing it and earn 
a proper wage. That's really sad. Mm-hmm. But you Why probably moved sad, more Henry? units than number 32. Wait, I, I guarantee just, you I, moved more bikes than number 32. I, I would change my skills in a heartbeat and they are living but i you know i would want their skill set i would want their i would want to be in their shoes we're gonna we're probably gonna do a whole hour-long plus podcast on pay uh we need to move on from this but before we do i do want to touch on one more pay related uh talking point here and james that is that there appears to be a smaller pay gap between men and women in cross-country racing compared to other disciplines so what's what's going on there why do you think that is yeah we've talked about this quite a lot internally um xc riders generally their pay seems to be a lot better um we we in in other disciplines there's kind of loads of people making nothing there's a few people making a lot and in between there's just a big dip there's a gulf there's like very very few people in between whereas with cross country there's kind of people at every sort of wage bracket it seems quite evenly spread um the top guys top men and women obviously earn a lot um and um the middle people earn a middle bit and it, it, it sort of tracks um but yeah um i think generally they're um, a bit closer in relation to road cycling, where we talked about um, they have that culture where there's a minimum wage. If you race, you get paid. And also, I think there's a bit of competition there. Um, you know, we see um, riders swap between the two, you know, Pauline Ferron Prevost swap between the two. Obviously, you've got Van der Poel and Pigcock and people like that. And um, if you're not going to pay a rider to do cross country, but they can go and earn that minimum wage on a, a pro conti or a, a world tour team, um, they would just go and do that. So, you know, you kind of have to compete with that um, aspect. I think another factor might be um, surprising to to some people at Pink Bike, but also the viewership numbers with cross country. I mean, the world rides sort of cross country, you know? I know it doesn't seem like it in some places of the world or if you spend all your time on Pink Bike, but yet the majority of people in the world, they just ride their bike around uphills, downhills. They don't ride downhill race bikes. So there's probably uh, a much larger audience there as well, James, I would guess, maybe. Yeah, um, yeah, significantly, I think. Um, Red Bull released some stats a couple of years ago. XC is, is bigger than than downhill for viewership. I think we also need to remember it's an Olympic sport, so there's a lot more mm-hmm. national funding there. Um, I, Red Bull, I was speaking to Red Bull actually, and they said the biggest growth market is Brazil based on the back of the, they had the Rio Olympics and then you've got Enrique Avancini, who's pretty much like a celebrity over there. Like he has to go around with bodyguards and things like that because he gets mobbed in the street. Um, so, you know, it's in markets that downhill doesn't reach, which is kind of the, your European or, or North American markets. Um, it's a, it's a bit more of a global sport. And like you say, you know, it might not seem it if you log on to pink bike, but lots of people ride cross country like lots of people in europe it's way way bigger i'd I'd say than enduro or downhill there um yeah i think you touched on on it as well there the the evil capitalist system is doing while it does no favors for downhill riders uh it does do some favors for xc racers in that if they don't get paid well they will they have the opportunity to shift their talents over into road yeah, they've got just that extra bargaining chip, I guess, where if you specialise as a downhill racer, I guess you could do some enduro as well. But um, even that's becoming so specialised now that you need to train specifically for it. So, yeah, you're you're kind of um, a one-trick pony almost. Do you think there's also perhaps an element where, because of the Olympic nature of cross-country, a lot of these riders have come up and they're known to the national bodies? And in some ways, that basically drives at their value because they've had investment in them and it's been over time measured you know you get some downhill rider who might be hot on the scene come out of nowhere but that's not the same as being like we've had this rider on our radar for 15 years you know that's probably gonna i would imagine ch- change their value a bit if you guys had were marketing people at a bike brand would you care more about having a single olympic gold medal on your bike or having an entire like a overall title in xc Oh, that's not mm. the question I thought you were going to ask. I know. <laughs> um, I think that Olympic gold medal is worth a lot more, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I think Olympic yeah. gold medal gets you in broadsheet newspapers. It gets you on BBC Sport website. It gets you on Sports Personality of the Year, which is like a big yeah. competition we have over here. Um, but for mountain bikers, though, James, like me personally, I know I would, I 
would value another rider's World Cup overall more than a win at the Olympics. I mean, that would be amazing, of course, but to win an overall, I think, is more impressive for all of the obvious reasons. But that's exactly the decision that a lot of marketing people have to make is that, am I trying to win with just the core? Which is, let's be honest, especially downhill racing, very core, very niche. The vast majority of the cycling world, the, uh, the vast majority of your potential... Uh, your potential customers doesn't know anything about downhill racing, wouldn't know who any of those people are. Like they, it, I mean, yeah, Danny McCaskill, maybe a couple people that have crossed over for sure, but do they know who downhill racers are? No. The reason that brands invest in downhill racing is because you care about downhill racing. I care about downhill racing. The core bike people care about downhill racing. And those people do, huh, Henry influence their peer groups. So, Sounds- you know, all of us are the bike guy for our friends who are not into bikes or who are just like peripherally interested in bikes. So when they come to us for for bike advice, that's why those brands are trying to win with core mountain bikers. It's you talk to a few people at the top, tip of the pyramid and those people influence all of the people under them, theoretically. That's the idea. Whereas the Olympics, as, you can bypass all of that and you can win with the pyramid, top of the pyramid, all the way down. Just as an example, if we look at downhill... The common style supreme was, you know, privateer's mm-hmm. choice. Everyone, everyone, mm-hmm. you know, in that core audience was amazed at what this bike could apparently do. Do you think that that affected common style sales as a whole? In a positive way, that's what that's the mm-hmm. only reason these companies have downhill bikes and have downhill well, teams. That's, that's what I'm saying. So, I mean, it must do something. But how how good of a performance or how standout of a bike's design does it have to be to correlate? If you kind of see what I'm getting at, because uh, there must be has to win but lots of bikes win and they're like meh you know or maybe i think that's what, what made the comments all interesting and the reason that it came up so hard is that it won under some people who weren't super well known at the time it's not like they just went out and bought an engine you know they didn't just buy the fastest guy and put him on the bike and go yep we can win there too mm. um so it was like semi unknown names tons of people tons of private teachers, so you just saw this like constant repetition and it was a cheap bike in comparison to some of the other bikes. So it had the perfect storm of like, it was an everyman bike and it was winning. And it stood out too, like it did something different. You know, obviously there was a performance aspect to it as well, but it, it really adds to the story, right? If, you know, look, we've, we've gone back and we found, you know, we've, we've done something with high pivots and now like we're smoking everyone. Like I remember being surprised at how, so do you remember when the Athertons came out on GTs and immediately decimated the whole season? Like 2013? Somebody yeah, The me. Aluminum Fury. It wasn't... I forget. Oh, they raced yeah. on the, the weird carbon one for a season. It was the carbon they? one, yeah. 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 Um, but they won, they, just, they won everything on the Aluminum Fury. right? Yeah. And I, w- I remember at some point through math trying to... F- I was at a rival bike brand figuring trying to figure out how many bikes they sold. And when I figured out how many bikes they sold or like kind of getting an approximation of how many bikes they sold, it was shockingly low. So it isn't of those specific bikes, right? So it isn't always winning on Sunday doesn't necessarily sell the same bike on Monday. No, I think you are, you're talking about the Fury recall through Durrell and it worked out. There was like hundreds of them out there, only hundreds. (laughs) Is I don't remember if that's how I figured it out. I do remember yeah. figuring out how many bikes they'd sold. So how many of those bikes they'd sold and being shocked at how low it was. Yeah, it might have yeah. been through the recall. Yeah. You know, downhill bike sales are like zero. They don't matter. But mm-hmm. they sell all the other bikes. It's even the trail bikes and maybe even some cross-country bikes. Who knows? But they sell all the other bikes. The pig in the window. I think what was interesting about the GT, though, is I think there are some bikes that, irrespective of how well they work... There are bikes that look like they work and bikes that don't look like they work. The common cell, you could kind of just, you, you thought at least, you could see how well the bike worked. The GT, let's face it, wasn't a particularly good looking bike. They they didn't sell that many because it says GT on the side. It has nothing to do with what, what it looks like, Henry. Oh, no, I mean, it had a bit, had a quite a lot to do with what it looked like. It's one of those things. The I think it looks area. great. I had one. They're <laughs> oh great. Oh, my God. <laughs> You are just straight up wrong. I think you guys can both be right that there was, 
GT has an uphill or had an uphill battle to to fight with perception. But I remember that back in in that time, there was like when they won all that stuff. I remember being very jealous and being like, "Oh shit, they are coming on strong!" Like GT is an elite brand again. And then when those numbers came out, or however we figured it out, um, wasn't the case on those particular bikes, anyways. So I, okay. I, I I think I think we can just end on that note with uh with it doesn't your downhill bike sells other bikes you know there's uh santa cruz sells a lot of enduro bikes despite not having a a top tier ews team that wins everything hey james while we're talking about pay sort of still what sort of gap was there between the cross country and the downhill crew pretty significant i think um like i said the pay for cross country is is kind of spread um across the chart you know um the the very best downhillers are running the same as the very best cross-country riders and uh I, you know if if nino and Gwyn's salaries are pretty equal i wouldn't be that surprised put it like that um but you know there's um like i say there's a bit more of like um a buoyancy i guess so like maybe your your 10th uh fastest cross-country rider um is is still earning a decent amount but your 10th fastest downhill rider they might be you know like significantly less than Quinn. um so i think that's the way the difference comes in is that more of the field is supported better um like maybe the top 20 all and you know a, a pretty decent wage in xc whereas it's just like the top five or something in downhill and if we look at the median wages like the median wage was 30 to 40k in cross country mm-hmm. 5 to 10k in downhill and 10 to 20k in enduro what was interesting maybe we should talk a little bit about slopestyle and free ride it was 40 to 50k median now our sample size of the of the non-racing athletes was pretty small so it definitely skewed towards some high level media athletes and slopestyle people that have got big names because it it was very hard for us to find a way to do that and a lot of them didn't respond <laughs> next year just to make an amazing podcast i want to know i want to include in the survey just just as a tidbit just have you got any weird clauses in your contracts because oh. i know i know of one professional rider who has it in his contract that and this is a quote he must try <laughs> <laughs> and I bet there's uh, don't give brian ones. any ideas with me okay i'm putting that in your contract, contract. <laughs> <laughs> I know I know of one professional rider who in his contract with the brand it specifies that the brand won't make him quote do any lame shit. Oh, I like it. <laughs> you know, this is like the bands in the dressing room when like mm-hmm. in their contract they need like 8 pounds of M&Ms, a bag of nacho chips, some sardines, like all sorts of weird things, a massage chair, definitely specific drugs. Yeah, very specific drugs. Let's let's move on from pay numbers and talk about some other things. Uh, let's keep it on XC, though. James, it seems like the XC racers, they don't want any more technical courses. I definitely want to see them on more technical courses, but they yeah. don't. Yeah, I was pretty disappointed to see this, really. Obviously, it's been a, a bit of a trend, right? You know, um, XC courses have been getting more technical. Um, I think more interesting was as, as a result. Now you see most of them on full suspension bikes, not hardtails now. Um but yeah, the, according to the survey, they're either kind of happy with how it is or maybe they would rather it goes back to something um, a bit less technical. My theory is that if I was a racer who was um, being paid to put in a good result, I'd want to take out all the kind of elements of surprise as possible. Um, if if I could yeah, race on sort of the smoothest, easiest track possible, then I'd be relying on my training more than my skills and and that seems like a bit more reliable. That would be my thought, but... Is there potentially an element of they wouldn't have been happy with how how mellow it was five years ago, but they're happy with where it is now, and if it keeps going too much more technical, they just think that it becomes something not cross-country? Yeah, potentially. I, I mean, the next, I, I guess the next discipline up is Enduro, and they're, they're a long way from pretty that, big gap. They, so. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty big gap. <laughs> uh, I mean, like, when we talk about more technical, we're talking about, like, three foot doubles and you know rollable drops and things like that we're not you know they're not oh i don't know there's some there's some good pretty pretty hairy stuff on xc courses these days it looks pretty small on tv see some yeah i would like to see some some 
harder terrain, not necessarily jumps and stuff, but just like more technical terrain that maybe forces some of the riders to walk down some things. Like we've seen races, not many, but we've seen races won on downhills. They're, I mean, that's not what the sport is known for, for sure. But yeah, I would like to see some more um, separating terrain, mm-hmm. terrain that separates the riders, you could say. Yeah, and I think generally there are uh, multiple runs as well on cross-country races. There's sort of your easier, longer run. And then if you want to make time, you go down the more technical route and take that risk. So, you know, I think as as it may be if you give that option um, to, for an easier workaround that's slower, I don't think there, there could be an issue there. I think you see it in some, I think it's in Rallycross and they have the longer alternative route that you have to use once. I think Joker something like that could be cool just to make sure you don't, because it's so frustrating, isn't it, when you do see the more technical XE courses and they do get, you know, single file and they're kind of stuck there. It'd be cool, that tactical nuance of trying to get out of the way early or, you know, it could be really exciting. I love all of the little rules and ideas that Henry has for this. <laughs> I guess it's like it it, it it just risks losing the core if it doesn't um, if it doesn't stay technical, you know. It, it I feel like we used to call... Uh, cross-country riders just like roadies on on dirt basically and i don't think you could really level that accusation at them anymore um which i think is a really good thing but um i just think it's in a great place right now cross-country mm-hmm. racing is awesome right now you know what else is going on with xc though a lot of racers are still concerned about drugs so james 36.1 percent of mm-hmm. the people that of the cross-country racers that you polled either agreed or strongly agreed that performance enhancing drugs are still a problem in cross-country racing who would have thought eh yeah i mean obviously there's been some pretty high profile cases in the past i don't know how much we can comment on like the current situation but i think that just basic math says that if if 36 percent are concerned about doping that means that 64 percent are doping i think that's just <laughs> it's just simple math yeah <laughs> hiding in plain sight the math i'm kidding it's proven everybody <laughs> i'm kidding everybody please yeah. don't sue me i'm joking now, what is also interesting, though, is 46% of enduro racers, of EWS racers, are concerned about performance-enhancing drugs. That's that's more than the cross-country crowd. Whoa. Yeah. So a couple years ago, we saw a pretty big doping story go down that we covered on Pink Bike, which was strangely not covered in other media for the most part. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the Richie Rude and the Jared Graves thing. And it seems like almost half of EWS racers are still pretty concerned about this. Henry? Yeah, I mean, I think that's to do with a couple of things. I mean, one thing that is worth noting that's quite interesting about this is although the fear of doping is higher in the enduro compared to the cross-country, their faith in the fairness and integrity of the racing is also higher in enduro than cross-country. So it feels like, you know, enduro is kind of recovering from this sort of darker period where the UCI came in and, 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 you know, drugs testing started, but they still actually, you know, fundamentally do trust the racing. It's, it's quite a contradiction in some ways. What is there to, if it's not doping, how, how do people, uh, how do people cheat in XC if not through doping? Whereas with Enduro, there are a lot more ways to game the system with, you know, the pre-practice runs or, you know, renegade practice runs or changing components, etc. Like, it seems like there are more opportunities to to cheat in enduro than there are in cross-country, aside from doping. It feels like with enduro, to an extent, a lot of people just go out and they go race their bikes to the mountain, they come home and they do so individually of each other. In cross-country, you know, you have the short track and that, that's your seeding, you know, there, there are more factors mm-hmm. at play, maybe. Good point. From um, the races we polled, um, we, we gave like an open comment section where they could just say anything else they wanted. And with the XC um, people, it was things like dirty racing, I think. So like sprint deviations and tra- maybe like trying to push other racers into barriers and, and things like that. Um, that was a, a thing. And then they there was sort of a general feeling that higher profile riders get away with more things. Um you know, like contact and and things like that, I think. I think what's interesting, though, is that I think in terms of when we're evaluating the fairness or or lack thereof, is that, you know, ingrained suspicion and mistrust is going to be the most powerful and overreaching thing in that area. And Mm -hmm. let's face it, you know, like we said, you know, that kind of roadie and 
cross-country culture, they're almost waiting for the disappointment. I mean, if you think the way that when, for instance, Martin Mace got caught with his, um, I don't know what the correct term, term is, not get sued, his predicament, his pickle, when the Martin Mace pickle was reported, he um, it was amazing to me, coming from somebody that's followed a lot of road cycling growing up, not not to comment on the situation in, whatsoever, but the amazing people that were so eager to rush to his defence, Mm-hmm. Yes. When you would never get that in road cycling, it would be the like benefit you've of been the doubt. done. Yeah. yeah, we have the benefit of the doubt in, in, I was surprised with that, about that in both our coverage, you know, Levy and I spent a lot of uh, stressful days working on the, the first EWS doping story with Jared and, and Richie. And I was surprised it's at, I mean, it was very polarizing, obviously, but I was surprised at, at how quick people were to give them the benefit of the doubt. And I don't think that that's necessarily good or bad. It was just interesting compared to other, yeah. other cycling disciplines. Last season I wrote, a, it was just a quick Martin Mays bike check. And I had done a bunch of them from whatever event it was for different racers. And they all started off with kind of like recapping the, the previous season. And the, the previous season, Mays had had that doping positive, whatever it was, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and I included a couple sentences about it in there. And out of... 250 comments, like 50 to 70 people were like, Levy, you're a piece of shit for even mentioning that. It's like, dudes, this is news. Like, it this is happened. a big deal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, we have to cover it. You know, I, I I find that very strange, to be honest. Yeah, we got the same thing with the, um, the amateur guy uh, a couple of weeks ago. The guy who was taking mm-hmm. 10 different substances and like, you know, the stakes are maybe a bit lower amateur racing, but... I don't know. I'm pretty zero tolerance for doping. I think everyone should be. Um, and yeah, we got a lot of kind of stick for reporting on that, but it's cheating. <laughs> like, it's cheating. Yeah. <laughs> and and even if it's amateur racing, it's still stealing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People have paid entry fees. Like people have paid to put on the event and people and have trained you... all year to do well at an event. And then some asshole shows up who's on 10 different drugs and fucking beats them. I would be like, so competitive. <laughs> what happened to you? Jesus, man. Did Levy get beat by a doper? I'm, I mean, I'm sure you have in your racing times, but it's just... what I think is really interesting. It's like, you know, when you hear statistics about, um, you know, the fear of crime or something like that, it's, it's something that's, that's so hard to report on because in the EWS, to be honest, you would hear rumors now rumors of outlandish absurd you know like ridiculous behavior when you thought that is so ridiculous it cannot be true but people would would testify but no no no, that actually happened and i think Mm. that whether they are any truth in them or not it will be it's it's left its mark you know and that will be there for a while not the doping doping. I'm surprised that the fear is that low. I feel like it, maybe it's just something about racer mentality where they don't want to believe that they don't or that they're at a disadvantage or something. But I feel like if I was a racer, I would just I would just operate under the assumption that everybody else was cheating. And so cheat as well. Yeah. I mean, probably. I probably <laughs> would. If it honestly, if it's to feed my family or whatever. Like, have you guys watched Bigger, Stronger, Faster? That documentary oh, yeah. about doping. Yeah. Like it's it's one of the only things i've ever watched like that where it fully changed my mind on something not not that i'm pro doping or anything but it certainly made me understand some things in I a like, different light i like the pablo escobar defense of if it could feed my family that's real highbrow yeah it's <laughs> well i we're kind of laughing but let me let me put this situation to you henry you know you've you've worked your ass off for 15 years training in belgium ending up in ditches in the rain and you have a team you know you're making 30 grand and you're going to sign as a super domestique for 200 but to do it you know you got two kids to pay but to do this you're going to have to do drugs the team wants you to take you take you to drug town and this is all you've done your entire life it's this or you're going to do sports you, marketing yeah you have no other skills because you've <laughs> yeah. done this your entire life i mean this, guy, you know, this is getting a bit close to home now can we just back yeah. it up <laughs> i i have i have zero sympathy for dopers but on, on the same hand, like we all do things we're not supposed to do and situations a lot of times aren't just black and white, even if they are 100% wrong, you know? I don't think we need to solve doping today, guys. No. It's, it is an interesting... I thought we were on a roll. Can I help, Brian? Give us a chance. 
<laughs> okay. We, we almost solved it. And then, yeah, sorry, guys. <laughs> let's let's move on to something much more important and, and pressing. Social media stats, James. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's such a big part of uh, a racist job nowadays. Um, we And especially with COVID, right? Like COVID, we've all seen what our social media feeds have turned into. Um, oh. So um we we wanted to get Ryder's opinions on it um i think the most interesting one uh on this one for me um was that a lot of riders feel like social media kind of negatively affects their mental health um and you know it, it is a part of the job you can't really say i want to be a professional mountain biker but i don't want to be on social media um and you know if you have to post every day and put yourself out to, uh, just describing my job now put yourself out to the criticism of the masses um, <laughs> that's going to take a real toll on your mental health um james are you okay i think with social media mountain biking has got itself in a really dangerous spot in that a lot of other sports you know sebastian vettel doesn't even have social media he doesn't give a shit so good he just so does good. Thing, you know yeah but, Everything else, you're there to do the job, and that's how you get your exposure. In mountain biking, I think we're in a really precarious position where the people realise how targeted, cheap, and readily available social media is. And so to basically rip those funds out of that and get it to do the noble thing, which is, of course, race bikes, which is vastly, obviously, <laughs> more worthwhile for some reason, is going to be really, really difficult to readdress that balance if it needs readdressing at all. Maybe people actually don't don't really care, but I think it's a really sticky situation i think we're making a lot of assumptions that that one thing bad other thing good um you know it's still you know i'm not a social media person i don't use facebook or i'm not don't spend nearly as much time as other people on social but it's i can see why people are beaten down by it and Henry, you have a <laughs> I think we should mention that you yourself are no longer available on social media. Yeah, who would have thought? Who would have thought that, you know, oh man, it just um it's just not my cup of tea. I think it's great if you can enjoy it, but I don't enjoy it. The the only social media I use is Strava. I don't even use Strava. Can, everybody could everybody could reach me reach out to me on there. <laughs> I know, I felt even Strava I thought like I know, I just, I, I was just like, why would I was just like, fuck this. This is all a load of bullshit. Like, I don't want any of this. This is, this is the Kool-Aid. This is not, not for me. Yeah. <laughs> I have, I have a number here to back that up, actually. 86% of the riders that you polled, James and Henry, 86% say that they use social media to make themselves more valuable to sponsors. And when I read that, I see 86% of riders make posts to make money to sell themselves, which means I don't want it to click on their shit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that was Am I being ridiculous. That was absolutely the most popular by a, a long way. You know, when we asked why do you use social media to make myself valuable to sponsors, um, it's, it's pretty manufactured, this sort of air of positivity, right? Oh, I had to delete so many people from, you know, people that I enjoy and friends that are athletes and stuff during COVID when they all had to just got the whip cracked on them and they had to just make a million shitty posts. It was awful. Uh, you know, I just, it totally didn't, it's just like, I can't handle this. Sorry guys. Like as opposed to everybody else's million shitty posts, it's all to me. I don't know. I don't want to sound high horsey, but it's all <laughs> advertising. Like not just the racers, mm -hmm. like Brian, when you post a photo of the 3d printed thing you make, like you're just advertising oh, yourself yeah, just, on them. Just advertising Wait, them. for real though. Oh, myself. Is, yeah yourself which is fine but uh, i just see instagram is people posting like their best a guy hits. who has like 50 times more followers than me he's like yeah and i'm all about the cult of levy i'm embarrassed by my fucking instagram account i haven't posted on it since september it gives me the yeah. heebie-jeebies like yeah, but, i i don't you know, yeah i don't know the thing with social media and brian this isn't in relation to your 3d printing so i don't come on i post that shit because <laughs> but cool. it's basically everybody go check either, out the stories it's either advertising or the things so tedious you wouldn't even put your friends through in real life like the conversation so dull you're like this can only be a one-way thing because if somebody was on the receiving end of this they'd have a bloody stroke out of boredom like yes you're like yeah. oh, I'll, just, I'll put it into the other oh my god i went to the shops who gives a fuck sorry bit of a rant i'm <laughs> off it 
<laughs> I have, I got another number for everybody here to back up Henry's claims. 11% of people say they enjoy making content for social media. 11%. And 86% of them said they use social media to make themselves more valuable. Uh, only 11% want to. Yeah, it's um, it's worth noting with that question, it was like multiple choice. So you could answer more than one. So it's not as if you had to pick between value for my sponsors or enjoy it. You could pick both. Um, yeah, so it's it's pretty shockingly low. <laughs> I, I mean, if it's to the flip side of this is it's 86% of these athletes know what their job is. And the other percent are... Just like, why am I not getting paid enough? <laughs> I'm kidding. Oh, well, sure. I mean, if you if you're winning, your pressure to to post is much lower, for sure. To be valuable in other ways, much lower. But I do find it funny that we're, you know, in this group, we're kind of like, man, all these guys should make more, but also they shouldn't have to post as much on Instagram, and they shouldn't. Ha- we we found all kinds of ways to make them less valuable to the people paying them. So touche. <laughs> I don't know. I think it's a bit funny that we're we're do- we want it both ways. Who are who are the racers at the top of the pile? The big names that don't need to use Instagram, like the Sebastian Vettels of mountain biking world. We got Gwyn. Does Danny Hart use Instagram much? Danny Hart yeah, started he vlogging. Loads of vlogs yeah. and stuff. Yeah. 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 Oh, see, I don't go on. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'd say R- Richie doesn't have to. He doesn't do a ton. Um, but he's there. He's doing his yeah. thing. I don't think Sam Hill does much, does he? No, not much. Except when he trolls you. Yeah. <laughs> Me? <laughs> you specifically. <laughs> one of us on this podcast, Brian. Yes. <laughs> well, we were correct. We, we, knew that, we knew that it was a possibility from, from the start. <laughs> do you guys do you guys think that any of these racers with Instagram accounts aren't posting and the companies are posting for them or their manager managers are posting for them that kind of stuff? I absolutely posted as, on Wade Simmons' account when I was at Rocky Mountain. <laughs> and That's since I, one man I want on Instagram more, to be honest. <laughs> and, and since I uh, have been at Rocky Mountain, he has made it a grand total of zero new posts. <laughs> <laughs> He's doing it right. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about the most pressing matter on the Downhill World Cup series I'm blown away by this figure. This is strange. I'm almost embarrassed. 7.2% of World Cup downhillers, only 7.2% think that skin suits should return. Boys and girls, World Cup downhillers out there listening, it is your job to go as fast as possible from A to B. Stop being worried about what non-cyclists think about you and whether we have TV coverage and all this shit. Your job, like you, you... You're doing a kooky sport. Just dress kooky. Wear the right stuff. <laughs> if you're just in a standard large size Troy Lee jersey, but you're competing against someone who has their outfit tailored for them, so it fits their body and is like pretty much a skin suit without being made of lycra, then you're you're at a disadvantage there. It's currently the the currently like sort of weird vague rules um where people are going thinner and thinner and thinner and they're getting it tailored to their body the only advantage is the the fastest most supported riders so this Mm -hmm. yeah i shocked i think it's fairer if everyone just wears a skin suit to be honest i would just like to announce my breakaway series today it'll be like everyone say on 26 inch wheels for instance not saying that's what it's going to be i don't really give a shit but let's just say everyone's on the same with that Everyone does this, everyone does that, and then it will be about the racing and not about the spectacle. Who cares what clothing they wear? It's so you, dull, you know? You just want a race of champions. Like, you want a control series with, like, uh, balance of performance weight added to the bike. So all the bikes are the same. No. Can I be taller just... for this for this series? Can I be better? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm just saying, what I want in my dream downhill series is... Some title sponsors, so some things are the same throughout. I would like, obviously, more events, because who wouldn't? I'd like to know that everyone isn't starving to death as soon as, you know, the last round goes, you know, call me a bit soft and mellow, but I think that would be a nice thing. And also, I don't see the wrong with having a formula for the season, and then the next season, we know the formula's different, in the same you do yet again with with Formula One. Henry, are you a car racing fan? Uh, some yes yes i am but this makes sense irrespective of my love of car racing don't don't muddy it with that 
<laughs> no, no, I, I'm, I agree that that would be, that's not how I want to see World Cup racing, but I also agree that it would be super interesting if there was a series where the racers all had to be on the same bike, same tires, you know, that kind of thing. I'm not convinced that these bikes, that there's huge differences. Like bikes aren't winning these races, you know? There is such a, you know, you get some of these riders who come back to, you know, they they need to be racing World Cups, but they can't afford it. So somebody basically says, hi, we're going to take you around the world. The bike that you bought is going to be infinitely better than the one we're going to give you next season. It's got a load of crap bits on that are going to hinder you every which way. And then they get crap results and then they don't get a pro deal and then they go back and it's just a vicious cycle. They do it every three years. They just rise up and they rise down. And I think what would be really cool is to not have it, I don't want everyone on the same bike, but why couldn't it be that the downhill bike is just a concept of what the brand can do? And then, you know, you can make it ridiculously long. You you know, you can have stupid long bikes, stupid low. And say from the knowledge that it isn't going to be a production bike. The production bikes are what we ride, which would actually be for mere mortals. And it would actually, I think, free up design by by taking it away from things that, you know, people need to get down blue ones. You know, it'd be great. Maybe the racers wouldn't be faster on those huge long bikes that you're talking about. Maybe the production downhill bikes that they're riding are the ticket. But the racing would be better. The spectacle would be more exciting to me. And that's what have, me, have I'm, been... I'm the one that's important to me. <laughs> <laughs> have you guys been following all the, the Formula One wheel size uh, commentary, Levy? Yes. It, can you can you read those articles about people concerned about the wheel size and this and that without kind of like giggling about the mountain bike parallels? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Like just the caring. Like yeah. a lot of fans are are upset about something that has no no effect whatsoever no. <laughs> <laughs> on, on anything. <laughs> oh, it's going to update their standards and then their their current Formula One cars that they have in their garage as fans <laughs> uh, are no longer going to be current. They won't I just be able to bought get a new set of Pirellis. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I I just want to tap cap this off here with I want your yes or no. Are you for skin suits? Are you against skin suits? I don't want you guys sitting on a fence. Brian Park, do you think World Cup downhillers should be wearing skin suits when they race? I think there should be no restrictions on anything about clothing or bike. Uh, other than motors, obviously, but I think it should be unlimited. Yeah. So James? skin suits faster. It's faster. James. Um, yeah, they should be, but most of them already pretty much are. Well, some of them pretty much already are. Yeah. And Henry, as long as there's a rule, I'm happy, whichever rule it is, you know, let us know in the comments, what you guys think. Should downhill racers be wearing skin suits? What do you think about the pay issues that we talked about? And should cross-country World Cup courses, should they be even more technical than they already are? Let us know in the comments and stay tuned for the next podcast. We'll see you there. <laughs>